Hey there, .NET Rocks listeners. If you couldn't make it to London this year for NSBCon, the very first conference all about N-ServiceBus, we have some good news for you. NSBCon is coming to New York City September 29th and 30th. That's right, two full days of sessions on distributed systems development from top speakers like Udi Dahan, Oren Eni, Ted Neward, and... .NET Rocks is going to be there too. Not only that, but we have a deal for you. Register before July 31st and get two days of video from Udi Dahan's course free. These videos will teach you about messaging patterns, where and when to use buses and brokers, and the right way to go about service-oriented architecture. These videos usually cost over $1,000, but we oh-so-gently twisted Udi's arm so you, our loyal listeners, can get access to the very best, but only if you register before July 31st. So join Richard and me at NSBCon and take your development skills to a whole new level. Go to NSBConNYC.com and register today. .NET Rocks, Episode 1006, with guest Rob Eisenberg. Recorded Tuesday, June 10th, 2014. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard, back from the Norwegian Developers Conference and back in the studio. Hey, Mr. Campbell. Back to the world. Back to the real world. So yesterday morning, I had delivered to my home a starter kit of baby formula. Why? Don't know. It was addressed to me, and it said right on it, now that your little one is three to six months years old, and went from there. So did you have a conversation with your daughters at that point? Well, yes, I did, in <laughs> fact. But I was thinking, you know, I've been out of town a lot lately, but I suspect I would have noticed a pregnancy in a three-month-old. Yeah, yeah. I'm just guessing. Yeah. So, I mean, if it was newborn stuff or you're going to have a baby stuff, that's one thing. This was, you know, baby formula. Just, you know, the way they track you and stuff. I yeah. wonder who bought what when to trigger that. Yeah. The big data moment. Right. I've been big dated, Carl. You have been. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. I feel really special about it. All right. Well, let's kick it off with a, a little joke. Better no framework. Roll that crazy music. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, you know, I almost, I, I don't like to stoop to jokes, but every once in a while, one comes along that I, I just can't pass up. So here we go. So a group of programmers are in a class in their, at college, computer science majors, listening to a lecture. And uh, one of the men leans over and, and gropes one of the women who's also in the, you know, in the same lecture. And she goes, hey, those are off limits. They're private, okay? And he looks confused and he says, but I thought we're in the same class. Oh, man. da dum dum <laughs> Okay. Yeah, you always have access to private members, huh? Well, you know, it's an old joke, but it's a good one. Okay. Yeah, okay. Crickets. That's what I hear out there. That's Crickets. what you got. Okay. So what do you got, Richard? Who's talking to us? Uh, let's see. I grabbed a comment off of Mr. Eisenberg's last show. That was show 909 when we were talking about Durandal. And uh, this comment comes from a fellow by the name of Dan the Other. Dan the Other. Dan the Other. Who says, uh, Durandal JS must be magic. 
I've not used it personally, but one of our die-hard old man Silverlight devs. Okay, let's just Whoa! think about that for a minute. <laughs> old man Silverlight dev. Really? <laughs> Holy crap. I'm, I'm just going to sit there on that one That's for a funny. Minute. That's gotta wait funny a minute. right there. Old man Silverlight devs who, <laughs> with emphasis, hates JavaScript with a passion, discovered it a while back, and is now a convert to the spa religion. Yeah. He still grumbles about JavaScript, things like dynamic types and you young whippersnappers and get off my lawn. Arr. But at least he's looking forward to the next Durandal update. I think knowing it was authored by the same dude who wrote Caliburn pushed him over the edge to roll up his sleeves and try this newfangled tech. You know, if it's good enough for Eisenberg, it should be good enough for you. Right. My hat is doff to you, Mr. Eisenberg. Keep the goodness coming. Awesome. So there you go. We, we talked about this on that show, actually, the whole idea that it's this combination of tools in the JavaScript world that gives you a very silver light feel. And uh, apparently Dan's seen someone with the same reaction, which is good news. I'm just disturbed at the whole idea of you can be an old man Silverlight dev. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. So, Dan, thanks so much for your comment. Uh, we think Durandal's awesome, too. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, let me tell you that Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet. They have thousands of developer IT and creative courses authored by MVPs, industry experts, and .NET Rocks guests, sometimes all at the same time. They release dozens of new courses every month and offer a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access with a wide range of topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, everything web, and anything and everything on Microsoft Stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And Mr. Rob Eisenberg is our guest today. Rob is an internationally recognized UI development expert. He's the creator of Durandal and before that, Caliburn Micro. Rob currently works on the Angular JS 2.0 core team, building the future. Welcome, Rob. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So that was a, a little bit of a bombshell. I'm going to work for Google. <laughs> <laughs> what have you done? What, what's, what are you thinking? <laughs> so what happened? Tell us. Tell us what happened. Yeah, it's an interesting. Um, it's an interesting story. But um, earlier this year, I think it was in January, the um, Angular team had their first official Angular conference, and. Um, as it turns out, there you know there actually is some overlap between people using Durandal and people using Angular. Some people that have common experience, mm -hmm. and uh, you know a couple of these guys, John Papa, Ward Bell. Oh yeah, um, have both you know worked with a bunch of libraries and been active in a number of different communities, and so they were actually both there at uh, the ng-conf and. You know, it was a smallish conference and with lots of opportunities to talk to Angular team members. And um, and they had opportunity to talk to Brad Green, who um, leads the project. And they were just talking about the future of Angular. And they said, hey, you know, we, we're building all these apps. And um, we, come up we come up across these certain problems with Angular over and over again. And we think you should talk to 
Rob because he's got this other framework and these particular places are actually places that he's got really nice solutions for. And that really uh, that really intrigued Brad and and John just basically sent an email introduction and said, "Hey, you guys should chat." Mm. And uh, and I kind of responded back saying, "Oh, you know, I love to talk." And I kind of sent him some links to uh, my open source. And this was just after that Kickstarter that I run, which did not succeed. But actually, it's kind of important how this all happened because as part of that, I did some next generation prototyping and made some videos and things like that. So I sent him a, a couple of links to what I was working on for the future. Um, mm. And as it turns out, at the same time, um, the Angular team was beginning preparations for their 2, 2.0 implementation. And I met with Brad through uh, just a Google Hangout, just chatter for a while. And um, you know what we discovered was that what I was planning to build for Durandal in the next generation and what they were planning to build in their next generation was very, very similar. So you're wow. like, I'm not sure I'd like to compete with Google so much. <laughs> right. It was one of those things where if you, if you kind of step back and looked at it and kind of imagine what the final product would be between the two different groups, you would it would be something that would, in, in a way, perhaps confuse the community because the end result will be so, so similar. It's, it, yeah. um, of course there probably would still be, you know, deficiencies in one and deficiencies in the other. So there still would be some like differences and, right. and things like that, but that would make choosing a framework even harder and, um, and so on and so forth. So basically he said, you know, well, would you consider joining us and helping us design the new version and because they were just starting out the process, I mean, um, yeah, they were just in a design phase and exploration phase. And he said, "Would you consider joining us? Help us design it. Help us implement it. You know, bring your experience from Durandal and and your experience from Caliber Micro because you know, yeah, that's valuable. You've been working in this area a lot for a number of years, and um, and as part of that, also consider whether." Durandal, because because we talked about how Durandal was built on these third-party libraries, and he said, as part of this, consider building Durandal on top of Angular. In other words, if all of your ideas don't make it into Angular itself, yeah, then take whatever is missing, so to speak, and build it on top of Angular and provide a nice, smooth uh, transitional experience for your existing community. Yeah, that was um, my next question. How did your existing customers take the news? Uh, overwhelmingly positive, uh, Great. as far as I can tell. And there's a few people, obviously people have some concerns, but, you know, for my role, I'm pretty committed to providing people with a migration path from existing Durandal to this future Angular version. Wow, one of great. the interesting things about Angular 2 is that, um, it is extremely modular. So Angular 1, when, when, you, when you go to use Angular, it's kind of an all-or-nothing deal. You get this one gigantic JavaScript file. And yeah, there are some other kind of things out there now, but the core of the library is all in this one big chunk. And you can't customize it or flip things in and out as much. But Angular 2 is designed in a much more modular way. So um, it's a lot of small pieces. And while we'll deliver it, so to speak, for most people in a way that is kind of the whole framework and you'll just use it, 
it also, by virtue of the way it's designed, can be a set of pieces to build your own framework. Right, right. Um, and so, in theory, with that design, even if I did not like the final experience of Angular 2.0, you know, just my own personal aesthetics, I could take a number of the core modules and combine them in a slightly different way and put some of my own stuff in there and then uh, sort of build a, a new Durandal that was built on Angular. Now, I don't think that's what's going to happen, actually, because... Um, you know, the direction that we're heading with Angular 2.0 is getting a nice mix of, of some of the stuff that I am concerned about, you know, coming from, from Durandal. So um, I think, you know, I'll probably write a couple of optional modules that people will plug in. But for the most part, Durandal will become sort of a, a flavor of Angular or a, a opinionated, maybe a slightly more opinionated way of using Angular in the future. Right. Um, that mirrors the the kind of aesthetic that Durandal users have today. So yeah, we just had this common vision, and we um, said, "Well, let's let's do it together." And, um, and so I joined that team. I literally started work um, the first week in February, and we were in a design process then. So about the first month was kind of just researching, some light prototyping, writing a lot of docs, reading a lot of docs giving a lot of feedback to other members on the team who were working on different aspects of the new design. And, uh, you know, as part of that process, we were looking at modern browsers and standards that are on their way and thinking about, you know, what does this next generation app development experience look like? What If we could kind of reimagine things and, and come up with something that's the best possible story for developers and that, you know, has... Uh, great performance across a variety of devices and so on and so forth and kind of solve some of the problems that maybe Durandal had in the past and solve some of the problems that Angular had in the past and kind of bring the strengths all together. You know, what would that look like? And so we spent a good month kind of just doing that and then started uh, doing heavy uh, prototyping and, and now we're, you know, we're in, into development. What kind of problems are we talking about? I mean, I thought Durandal was magic. It is magic. It has no problems at all. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Good answer. No. Um, well, it, it's interesting. Actually, on the blog post where I talked about this, I named a couple of things where, where Durandal was uh, stronger or a couple of places where Angular was stronger. And, um, you know, one of the advantages of Durandal, in a sense, is that it's built on jQuery, Knockout, and RequireJS. But it's also can be a little bit of a disadvantage because it's then kind of beholden to those libraries. And so it makes accomplishing certain things in a seamless or more elegant way a little bit more difficult or impossible in some cases. One thing that Angular does great that Durandal doesn't really do at all is, is custom elements, essentially. They're, they're called directives, and they let you create custom HTML tags. Now, you can achieve the equivalent of that in Durandal through our widgets implementation, but it doesn't give you a, that actual custom element that you can put in your in your markup. And so that's why I say it's there it has a similar capability, but it had um, it wasn't as elegant. It wasn't really yeah. that ideal developer experience that people really wanted. And so that's a strength Angular has that it will continue to have. And um, but there's also aspects of Durandal that Angular didn't have, um, which is that Durandal, for example, can very easily load your code on the fly and dynamically load views and so on and so forth. 
And that's a, it's much, much harder to do with Angular 1. And that just has to do with the entire way that their templating engine is built and um, how even how directives work and a, and a host of how dependency injection works and a host of different parts of, of their library. So is all that going to be in Angular 2? Yeah, so in Angular 2, um, you know, like dynamic loading is a major use case. Um, so things have been redesigned around the related pieces in order to enable that. Um, oh, cool. So that's an interesting area where they knew that they had a deficiency. I had the problem solved in my library, and we just kind of joined up and helped to design the way it would work in the in the new version. But wow. that wasn't that wasn't necessarily insight that they got from me joining the team. They kind of they kind of knew, hey, people in the real world are trying to do these things, and it's really really hard. And if we could do it over again, we would do things a little bit different in these ways in order to enable this scenario. Another thing Durandal is good at that that I'm helping um, to bring to Angular is uh, what I would call like a dynamic composition of views. Um, and this actually comes out of, out of XAML in a way because um, XAML had this, at least in WPF, had this way of applying data templates based off of type. And so you could have an object and you could render it with this template and it would sort of automatically select the right template based on the type or you had these template selectors that you could write custom logic to to show it how to render things so Durandal has this very dynamic uh, way of being able to compose views just based off of the data and so on and so forth which is really important if you've got just a highly dynamic app that's maybe configuration driven or um, dashboard apps, for example, are a fine example of that. It's a lot easier when you can say, I want to compose something into this part of the screen. I don't know what it's going to be until runtime. So based off of the data, go get the right controller and view and put it in there. That was a lot harder to do with Angular, but very easy with Durandal. And so hmm. we're bringing you know, those are the kind of, me being on the team, those are the kind of use cases I'm fighting for and, and providing use cases for and that are influencing underlying design so that it's possible, even if that's not supported, say, out of the box, it's possible to build that very easily with the new version. Rob, is there anything that, based on your discussions inside, that you fear that's, uh, you know, killer features of Durandal that won't make it into Angular 2? Um. Nothing is ringing a bell. In the in the first couple of months, I was I was very wary. Um, and in fact, when we started this agreement, we said let's work together for two or three months, and then let's decide at the end of that whether you want to join us long term or whether you want to kind of go back. And so at the beginning, I really wasn't sure. But as we kind of argued through things um, on the team and and uncovered use cases and talked about design, I became by the end of that period. Um, I became pretty confident that either it was going to out of out of the box be able to do what I wanted to do, or whether the core API would enable me to build a couple of custom modules that could do what I wanted it to do. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't really have a lot of fears around that right now. Um, and the challenges we have right now are navigating the upcoming web standards, actually, and figuring out what that means in terms of our implementation and so on and so forth. But I should say this before I go any farther. like Anything I say about Angular 2.0 right. is totally subject to change. Right. Uh, <laughs> of course. Uh, so we're, we're still working you know, on there, it. There are parts of the code uh, that are, are pretty stable, but there are also other very important parts, like our templating engine, for example, 
that from week to week is undergoing like massive changes and there's a lot of experimentation still happening there. So, um, you know, nothing, when you see the final version, uh, it might look quite a bit different, but. Do you get the sense that they listen to the community, Google? The Angular team is very in touch with the community. Um, there's a huge community focus there. They have a lot of interaction um, just from on a day-to-day basis, uh, the way that the open source project is managed. Um, so yeah, they definitely listen to the community a lot. And, and I, in fact, my, my joining with them is very much a product of them. Sure. Um, really taking to heart what a few members of the community said and looking at what else was going on and, and, uh, wanting to foster, um, you know, uh, more collaboration. Yeah. And in fact, some of the API designs, even if you look at Angular 2.0 in this very core architectural aspect of it, breaking it out into these separate modules is very much something that um, helps to, is good from a community perspective because then um, people can take parts of Angular 2.0 and do completely different things with it. And right. these are all in actually different GitHub repos, right? So as an, just to give it a concrete example of this, the, um, the data binding language um, for Angular 2, it, you know, there are these data binding expressions, right, that you say, like, foo.bar, you know, uh, just that snippet of the, of, of the binding, right? Or you say, like, my uh, save, call my save function, or take my first name and add it to my last name and data bind that into this span or whatever. The expression part is actually in its own library. It's just a library that takes a, essentially takes a string in and returns an AST, an abstract uh, syntax tree of mm. the expression. So it has re- really like no ties to, to data binding actually at all. It has no ties uh, to templating or to um, even to the DOM in any way. It's just an expression library. You can pass it a string and get back this AST, and then using the AST, you can, um, you know, evaluate it given a certain data context or whatnot. And so that that's just that's just out there, and you can imagine that there could be lots of uses for that that actually have nothing to do with uh, UI frameworks, right? So I think this is actually in a core approach to the design of Angular 2.0, which is very uh, good for the community because there are these smaller pieces that can be used in different ways now, out, even outside of Angular. Uh, so that's one one kind of neat little example. Um, the actual data binding piece of Angular um, is in a library now called Watchtower, and that is actually independent of the templating engine. Hmm. It takes uh, it t- takes dependency on um, Expressionist, which is our the expression library, which I just um, told you about. Right. And essentially, it it it's just a library that takes. Um, you, you create what we call a watch group for a, a piece of data. And then you take these ASTs you get out of Expressionist and you pass it in. You tell it to watch this expression given this data context. And, and that's essentially all it does. Like It doesn't know anything about templating per se. It just does that one little piece. And you can imagine that if you didn't like Angular's templating engine, you could go build your own, but you could still leverage Expressionist and Watchtower inside of that. Now, that's building a new templating engine is still a good deal of work, but you don't have to like re-implement those other two pieces, which in their own right are, are rather significant, you know, chunk of work. Um, so this is kind of something I think that's 
talk about community, I think all the way down to the very architecture of Angular 2.0, there is a desire to put something out there that the community can leverage in ways that the Angular team maybe hasn't thought of and can contribute uh, to improving even those small little pieces without having to know the the whole Angular also. So I think architecturally good in terms of the day-to-day interactions that the team has, uh, a lot of listening to the community, a lot of um, working with pull requests that the community sends in. You know, I think the modularity is a huge thing, especially for mobile devices, right? Because yep. you don't, yeah, you, you only want to use a couple of those things or you don't want to have to wait for the this whole big library to download. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 I'm very happy about that. Awesome. Uh, decision and, um, and I've had, uh, you know, a good opportunity to work on a number of the different, I worked on almost every part of Angular to now. Um, and uh, I worked, I did almost all the work on Expressionist. I've done a lot of work on Watchtower. Um, I didn't do any work on our dependency injection framework, which again is its own library. And people are using that, for example, in Node uh, on the server, right? But it's also being used by Angular 2.0 on the client. So there's just a dependency injection framework that's just out there, which is just a great thing to have. I haven't really worked on that, but I provide a lot of feedback um, on that because I have you know some experience there through .NET and whatnot. Um, but uh, a lot of really cool pieces. Templating Engine is out there in its own repository, and that's very volatile right now. But there's stuff that's happening around data. We've got some plans around data. Um, we've got some plans around touch and gestures um, and all those kinds of things. will each be in their own libraries. HTTP interaction in its own ra- library. The router in its own library. Um, so, you know, most people, when they use Angular, they'll probably just bring down all the pieces. But because things are broken out like that, um, there's a lot of flexibility, a lot of different ways to contribute, and uh, each library can kind of have its own life, and um, you know, a lot of opportunities open there. Well, I think about how Durandal was sort of composed on top of jQuery and Knockout and Require. It's almost as if Angular is doing the same thing. It's a composition. It's just they're building all the pieces. Yeah, and interestingly enough, they're 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 we're not actually building all the pieces. So we're we're trying that, and so again, speaking of community, like we're trying to say, do we need to build everything? Right. Uh, definitely, there are some things we have to build. The, for example, Watchtower, which is how we um, essentially observe objects for changes, and that powers our data binding system. That's really something that's very unique to Angular. There's not an existing library out there that does that. Um, and there's been a ton of innovations that have happened even since Angular 1 going into our new version there. So that's not something we can just kind of take from somewhere else, right? But, right. Um, but for example, the router, which is, is something that I'm doing a lot of work on, um, the current implementation we have is using something called Route Recognizer, which is actually a dependency of the Ember project. So, um, you know, like I said, everything's subject to change. Who knows if that'll be in the end? But it's just its own library that's sitting out there on GitHub that does this one uh, aspect of pattern matching and so on and so forth that's related to route, routing. It does it very, very well, and it's the only thing it does. And so, uh, like, our current router implementation has dependency on that um, rather than having to build that from scratch. So the Angular framework, so to speak, as most people use it, will be a composition of these different modules. Most of them will be written by 
the Angular team, but there will be there may be some some other things out there like that. And interestingly enough, speaking of RequireJS, our current implementation uses RequireJS under the covers. Um, it's oh, really? Not, it's not dependent on RequireJS at all, um, but uh, we use RequireJS for loading in all of our current kind of situations where we need to do that. It, we, our code is actually written with ES6 um, and transpiled into ES5 um, using the tracer compiler. And so we actually write our code using ES6 module syntax. And that can compile down into AMD modules. And so then you can load it with require. But you know, the, in the end, developers will be able to write their code however they want. If they want to use require, they can do that. If, they, if their browsers that they're targeting support ES6 modules directly, they can use that. They'll be able to use a, a variety of different ways to load. But actually, for our current um, testing and prototyping under the hood, our code um, is using require. Um, it just compiles to AMD, and then we load it with require. So um, there's a there's a good amount of sort of trying to leverage existing community work and not reinvent the wheel just for the sake of it. And um, you know, like I said, trying to foster a more collaborative spirit. Uh, you know, be a be a team player, right? Um, right, in, sure. In, in the global web. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is. Uh, it must be that happy time again. You got it, brother. It's time to unbind this cognitive view model from its proper interface and wire it up to a new view built with tangential and whimsical non sequiturs. <laughs> <laughs> what do I look like? A tape recorder? What's the matter with you? <laughs> no, it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before we tell you who won, let's talk about Telerik DevCraft. Supercharge your .NET productivity with Telerik DevCraft. This bundle includes over 420 UI controls for all .NET technologies, including ASP.NET AJAX, MVC, and WPF. Plus, you'll also receive the Kendo UI HTML5 JavaScript framework, productivity, reporting, and debugging tools. Telerik DevCraft comes with three upgrades per year and Telerik's industry-leading support. Download your free 30-day trial today at Telerik.com slash DNR dash DevCraft. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Oscar Zarate. Congratulations, Oscar. Golf clap for you, yep. sir. And he just won the DevCraft collection from Telerik. And that's just about everything they do in one box, as you just heard. Hey, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we give away great stuff like this. And every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club picked completely at random by our randomization code supervised by Microsoft and written in .NET <laughs> with... Specific random number generators that are absolutely random. And are very random. We promise. And uh, Rob, we like to ask our guests if you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, because they get to choose, what would you buy? Uh, let's see here. Mm, I actually, a couple of not not very big ticket items, but ones I'm curious about are I, I love to try out the uh, the Amazon Fire TV. I'm I'm kind of curious about that. 
Just got one. Did and, you really? Uh, yeah. What do you think? Oh, it was easy to set up. I haven't used it, but because, um, you know, I'm not really interested, but the kids like it. Cool. Yeah, so. I'd love to try that out. I'd love to try out the uh, the Ouya. Um, I'm just kind of curious all these little kind of newer. I got the Ouya as part of the Kickstarter. What do you think of it in the end? Uh, you know what? It's a it's a generation behind kind of game system. For the number of hours I have to game at, I tend up on the Xbox One most of the time. But I, you know, I pitched in on it because I like the idea of a better platform for indie games. Right. Yeah. And I, I think what they, you know, what makes a game unit successful is a marquee game, right? For Xbox, it was Halo, and for uh, PlayStation, it's Final Fantasy and and the like. And Ouya needs a couple of marquee games, and I think it would do better. Right. Mm. But uh, for a hundred bucks, you can't go wrong, right? Like you find one game you want to play, and it's typically an, uh, a retro game. You play it for an afternoon. You paid for that device. Like that's that. Yep. The one criticism I have heard about the Amazon Fire is that when you do a search, all paths lead to Amazon content. Yeah, <laughs> it's very hard to get <laughs> that's around. Not too surprising though, right? Like, yeah. Uh, there's a business model somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bit. Isn't that an interesting problem? We have so many walled gardens around us right now that that are doing their best not to look like walled gardens. Yeah, I was trying. I was thinking about this technology thing, and I came up with a list of you know, there's the Amazon Fire TV, the Ouya, and I was like, I like to try out the new Xbox. I like to try out the PS4, you know, and, and then all of a sudden it's like now I've got, and really I want to get it. I actually don't care about the device. Like I care about like the screen experience, basically, right? Like, the content, and but it's like you've got there's all these different, like you say, wall gardens that. To get at the content you want, you have to go through all these different gates, <laughs> and each one of them has a uh, an entrance fee, right? That is yeah. And somehow I ended up with one of everything in the house, and it's a lot of video game machines, and all of them want to be your default console of choice, yeah. not just for gaming but for everything. Yep, it's kind of annoying actually. Everybody wants to be the center of your universe, and you just want to play a game. And don't forget, like, Roku makes a $150. The Roku 3 picks up all of my audio and video files off the server. The thing is the size of a pack of cards. It just has a power jack, an HDMI cable, and, and a network cable in it. Like, that's it. And a remote that actually works. Like You know, there's a technology that we used to use that we forgot about, but they've sort of caught up is TiVo. Yeah. So TiVo actually mm -hmm. does all this stuff, too. And it has the, the same DVR stuff that you're used to. So, you know, it's doing exactly what Amazon Firebox and all of those things are doing, and they can record offline. Yeah, they say, there's a reason this market is fragmented. But they do Hulu, Amazon Instant Video, Netflix, YouTube, and they record it. It's interesting. Yeah. So many choices and no one right way. Yeah. And I haven't bought any of those anyways because I don't have time. That's it, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, I... Then you'd be obligated to use it. <laughs> right. They'll just, they'll just stack up. People think I'm like a snob when I say I don't watch TV, but it's just because I've got so many other cool things to do. Like, Sorry. When? <laughs> when? When would I do that? Yep. Sorry, I'm busy. You know, I'm looking at the GitHub repository for Angular, and A, it's full of stuff, all kinds of things. But it, it, I can also see, like you were talking about, the various bits and pieces that I guess are the beginnings of Angular 2.0. Like the main Angular repository has something like 800 contributors to it, but many of these other 
bits and parts like uh, like Deferred and Watchtower. It's one or two or four contributors. You, exactly. It's the, these are mostly the Angular staff, the folks paid by Google that are starting to assemble what Angular 2.0 is going to be. That's correct. Uh, so most of the core pieces are just being worked on by our our core team, and uh, most of them maybe have like four contributors tops or something like that. The one exception is uh, is DIJS, which is the dependency injection framework, and I think that like that's fairly stable. Uh, there's still some work being done there, but I think that that there's been more community contributions there, and that's also because people are actually using it in Node, for example. So they're kind of putting it through its paces there and, and bringing feedback to Voita is uh, kind of owns that um, owns that feature. Um, but most of the repositories, and I'll I'll try and blog a list of which repositories actually are like the Angular 2.0 people, um, so people can check that out. But most of them have, you know, like I said, maybe four, maybe six contributors, and they're all from our from our team. So it's still some of them are kind of early. There's a few with one as well, right? It's like this looks like a brain dump. Like, okay, we got to figure this out. There you go. I just like that it's done in public. Right. Yes. So if you are really hankering to know about the guts of Angular 2.0 and how it's evolving, I mean, you can watch it like on a day by day basis change in public. I, I don't think there's any repositories that are not public. The only one that's a little bit weird, interestingly enough, is the router, because that's sitting in my own personal <laughs> uh, GitHub ah, account. So it's right your now. fault. It's still, it's still public. <laughs> uh, it's still public, so you can go find it. And it was done as a prototype, but it's kind of grown to probably, probably going to essentially be our implementation. So that'll be moving over under the Angular org um, in the near future, but right now it's under my under my account. So, but everything else is right there. You can look at like three. Like if you were to look at the templating repo, you would see like three or four completely different implementations and different branches. So you could tell that like, okay, stay stay back. Right, this is not uh, anywhere near stable. Right, but if you looked at Expressionist, you'd see that that's hardly changed over the last few months. Watchtower, you know, you'd see that oh, that that had breaking API changes last in the last couple of weeks, right? But it wasn't huge changes like templating. So, but you could watch all that. That's all happening in public. Most of our design docs are in public as well. Um, right. There's a, a post on the Angular blog that points to the uh, the Google Docs folder where most of those. A lot of those are kind of some of those are kind of going out of date real fast. Um, but yeah, I feel like there maybe is a little need to curate mm. this. I mean, I've never seen three pages <laughs> of stuff in one repository like this, or I'm just like, yeah, maybe this needs to be sorted out a bit. Yeah, it's really. I mean, it's all happening in public, but it's really only for the the brave soul to venture into at this point. And there's, <laughs> you can't you can't build an app with it. I mean, you can't build an app with it now. But I love the idea that somebody, a, f a few folks, have grabbed di.js and and gone off and used it in other ways. Yes, that's that's to me is super cool. You know, what one of the reasons you would do this in public is that people are now going to dependency injection in in JavaScript is weird all by itself. <laughs> but then that folks grabbed onto it and tried it for other things. Yep. Yep. So, given what you know about what's coming in Angular two, and it sounds amazing. I mean, how much? How do you think we're going to get a wave of new Angular users? And you know, especially if we get support from Microsoft in Visual Studio, do you think it's one of these game changer versions, or is it still going to 
be a you know be a little tweaky uh i mean i think that i think this actually independent of angular entirely there's just you're going to see a steady increase of this type of application being built yeah um so i think that because of that yes there will be an increase in in angular it doesn't hurt it that microsoft is you know announce some plans to have a nice angular experience in visual studio yeah that's <laughs> that's so key isn't it i think to uh with tuo i mean one of the interesting things about tuo is it's really targeted towards evergreen browsers which are essentially self-updating browsers so uh, we are not attempting to work on you know ie6 or even ie7 or 8 or even 9 necessarily um I, you know i'm not sure what our minimum ie version is right now but with Tuo, it's really about the the latest versions of the browsers and about mobile devices and reimagining what we could do if we can kind of get rid of all of the baggage uh, from older IE support and so on and so forth. And that actually results in some significant, even architectural changes that can affect performance in very big ways. Uh, so I think that you know Angular 2 is for people that have are going to be building mobile apps. Um, it's for people that are going to be building, uh, targeting modern browsers um, and things like that, or building desktop apps as well, because you can you can build those with with JavaScript as well, with some of the new uh, stuff that GitHub has got something out there for doing it, and there's Node WebKit and things like that. So, um, so Angular Two is really going to be taken up by people that can. F- fit within those constraints. Hmm. And then, as I've said uh, on my blog, like Durandal, um, the 2.x version cycle that I'm in with that is going to continue to be maintained, and so is Angular's 1.x version cycle. Right? So those, those aren't going away. Um, those are going to continue along with the browser compatibility and API consistency that they have. The Angular 2.0 is sort of like a, let's reimagine and let's use the latest stuff and let's see like how awesome an experience we can build uh, and how like how far we can push performance how far we can push the developer experience uh, given that we can only kind of use the latest stuff but I think there's going to be an increase I don't know there's going to be a steady increase across the board of people um, adopting things like Angular and Durandal and Ember and Angular 2.0, I think there will be, uh, I think it'll be a big deal because um, I mean, I'm pretty excited about what the direction that we're heading and how things are, are shaping up. Uh, I, it will depend on the, whether people can live in those constraints or not. And of course, there'll be migration paths as well. I'm not sure. Some people will migrate their apps. Uh, other people, I think there'll be a lot of opportunity for people that are starting, that are in greenfield projects to use Angular 2.0. Now, and Angular 2.0 is going to be the version where the Durando will now be using it instead of jQuery and Knockout? Right. And and essentially, because the, the we're not quite far enough along, like Angular 2.0 may equal Durandal next, right? There may be no difference at all. Or Durandal next may just be a couple of extra modules that drop into Angular. But yeah, Durandal won't be using uh, Knockout. It's it'll be built on top of Angular's templating engine, which uses Watchtower and Expressionist and all those pieces we were talking about mm-hmm. um, for data binding. And jQuery is really not needed. Um, 
a lot of people don't realize this, but if you are targeting modern browsers, you really don't need to use jQuery that much anyways um, because the there are new APIs that are yeah. uh, in similar in functionality and perform better. So like like Angular 2.0 has no no jQuery dependency and in, in 1.x they had a like a JQ Lite dependency uh but that doesn't even exist in 2.0 because it's, you can use jQuery sure but the but the framework does not require that because the browser um APIs have advanced enough to where we can do things natively better. But the future Durandal will either be equal to Angular 2.0 or will be Angular 2 plus a couple of plugins, basically. And that's how it'll look. I'm just thinking if I'm a developer working in the current Durandal environment, I got to be a little scared about what's coming here. Well, the, you know, I'm, one of the things I'm doing, like I said, because I, obviously I care about my own community. Well, maybe not obviously, but I, I do care <laughs> about my own community. <laughs> I guess it's not a given. It, it is in my mind. Um, I will thoroughly document the migration path. So people with existing apps that, that, like I said, can fit within those constraints of Angular 2.0 with modern browsers and so on and so forth, will have a path to migrate if they want to. But current Durandal is going to continue to be maintained. So, you know, in, in a way, it's kind of like if it is, isn't broke, don't fix it. I um, mean, you don't have to migrate. Um, Durandal is going to continue. While it's not going to get tons of new features, it will continue to have bug fixes and to stay up to date with its dependent libraries and so on and so forth. But there will be a migration path, and I think like Durandal users should be encouraged because the types of um, concerns that some of them may have had with Angular in the past are going away in Angular 2.0. Right. And some of that is because the Angular team has realized that well, some things are too complicated or um, there's too many concepts or we could have done this better and, and so on and so forth. And some of it is just from my influence, like, like I talked about dynamic composition yep. making its way in. And I'm doing a lot of work on the router for Angular 2.0. And guess what? It's highly influenced by Durandal's router, right? Awesome. So um, there'll be some familiarity there. And for the Angular folks, you know, speaking of things like the router, you know, um, They'll get a better router than they had before, basically. A lot more flexibility where they had to look external to Angular to try and solve problems. They may not need to do that now. So there'll be benefits to the Angular community getting better stuff, and there'll be benefits to the Durandal community seeing hints of uh, a familiar friend, if you will, throughout Angular and seeing sort of the discarding of some things in Angular that may have been a, a turnoff due to complexity or, or whatever. Um, so I think... Yeah, I'm trying to keep that in mind. And like I said, when I when I first joined them, there was sort of this probationary period, which is being used by both sides, the arrangement to evaluate. And I was really kind of uh, trying to stay on guard, making sure that what Angular 2.0 was going to turn out to be was going to be something that I would want to use. Um, right. That would be... Um, that would be either out of the box be able to deliver the kind of experience I wanted or whether I could write a couple plugins and transform it into that, you know, for my own, for my own work and for the sake of the community that really, you know, that really does like the way Trinal does things. Um, so like I said, things like influence on the router are coming in, things like influence around dynamic composition are coming in, things like uh, convention or configuration are coming in. Um, or at least hooks to do things like that. Um, yeah, uh, you know, 
things that maybe people would have been frustrated about with Angular where uh, if you've used Angular, you usually stumble through things like scope and digest and those are like really not going to be something you worry about with Angular 2.0. Sounds like it's going to be a bit more XAML-y. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some interesting similarities to, to XAML in a way. There's some interesting similarities to Knockout in a way. There's, um, you know, like I said, it, Angular, Angular had a very high concept count. And most people would say, well, once I learned to use it, I really like it. And one of the goals of, of Angular 2.0 is to kind of get rid of the once I learned to use it part, right? I mean, to <laughs> make it make it much easier to learn, to make to kind of s- simplify some of the concepts or remove some of the concepts entirely. Um, you know, like directives are gonna when people get into Angular one, like learning to write a directive is like a big milestone for you because it's a complicated thing and there's just a compile and there's this link and there's the scope and there's these all these things that you have to think about to write a directive. And, you know, like in our current designs for 2.0, I mean, like writing a directive is just sort of like you write a class and uh, provide a little metadata and you're done. It's, 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 so it becomes from being sort of like an intermediate advanced type thing, like it is in Angular 1, to becoming actually like a beginner level um, uh, skill, if you will, in Angular 2. That's kind of, that's kind of the goal. Some of the goals with Angular 2 is... You know, can we simplify things? Can we um, make it to where the advanced things become the intermediate things and the intermediate things become beginner things uh, so that people can do create more amazing apps easier without this huge learning curve? And um, I mean, every framework is going to have a learning curve, so right? sure. we, can't, we can't eliminate that, but we can certainly make it better. And that starts like uh, with some of the core concepts and things like that. And you see the focal point around this being on mobile? So mobile is a huge um, priority for Angular 2.0. Right. Uh, there's a couple of different ways it's happening. One of them is just in lots of performance testing and even building ways to do performance testing that is meaningful. Um, to a phone. Yeah. So some of it's performance testing and some of it is uh, things like um, some work that's happening with data around maybe supporting offline um, scenarios better which you know works for it's nice for every app but you know when you're on a phone and you go into a um a rough connection patch area or whatever you you need to be able to deal with that so maybe some facilities around that and then facilities around touch and gestures and things like that so there's sure. there's a diff- number of different ways yeah this is the weakness of the spa design right is you lose connectivity mid span on a spa page usually all hell breaks loose right yeah like you're starting over so there's some things that are being worked on around that, things around performance, things around touch. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of performance work that's already mm. been done, and there's a lot more will be done. I mean, one of the kind of, I guess it's kind of a, a complaint against Angular is, so Angular can data bind against you know, plain JavaScript objects. And it does this by having this digest cycle where it, Dirty checks everything you've got data bound and to determine whether anything's changed and then and then raises a notification when it when it finds that something has changed. Right. So um, like in Angular one, that has an upper limit of number of data bindings that it can handle and still perform well. Well in Angular two, 
that library, which is Watchtower, has been significantly optimized and, and redesigned in a number of ways that, you know, you get, I don't know, maybe four times, in some some cases, like four times improvement, in some cases, 20 times improvement um, in terms of what we can do there. And that's not even leveraging, like, new browser features. That's just design that is based off of knowledge of how the uh, browser GC works and new data structures that are able to be traversed faster and smarter things around recognizing like pure functions and not reevaluating when the inputs don't change and, and, and just smarter things, right? So that, that whole piece uh, has had a massive performance boost. Um, and that's not even including the fact that we can now also talk to Object Observe, which means the browser can natively tell us when certain things change uh, as well. And so that... We haven't tested that scenario yet, but you know, we suspect that that will also improve performance because we won't have to do dirty checking in the case where your browser supports that. Uh, so, you know, that's an example of where a lot of work has been done around performance that will help every app, but it's really critical on mobile um, because you want that 60 frames a second, buttery animation for transition page transitions and everything, and when you do a page transition, you know, there's some data bonding that's part of that. And there's this dirty checking that's happening in the background. And so it, it needs to be as fast and efficient as possible. So a lot of work going on there, a lot of work in templating, using new APIs to literally change the way that we compile and instantiate templates. That takes advantage of, like I said, new APIs, but the semantics of some of those APIs and how they work with the DOM so that we can do as much ahead of time as possible and be very efficient and then be even more efficient in how we instantiate which template is compiled. So there's a lot of work and experimentation doing around even those core pieces geared towards performance so that when you pull out your Android phone or your iPhone or your Windows 8 phone or whatever, um, you can have that native-like experience. So a lot of performance work happening as part of that. Yeah, no, it's going to be really challenging. We've just taken advantage that you run more and more complex JavaScript to simplify this stuff. So, and the horsepower inside of modern browsers on the desktop is epic. I just don't know that the phones measure up or are really inconsistent. Like, it totally depends on the phone. Right, it does. There's some interesting things just about browsers in general that there's lots of, I don't know if there's any books that really have uh, aggregated a lot of this information. I think it's probably mostly in the heads of, of certain people, so I probably need to blog some of this out there. But there's a lot of things about the way GC works and, uh, and the way object initialization works and the way certain, you know, just using certain data structures um, coming out of, you know, sort of, I want to say the old C++ days, but, I mean, I don't write a lot of C++ plus code these days, so it's all for me. But define a lot. But things that you had yeah. to think about. <laughs> a lot is one line, two yeah, lines. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I haven't touched it in a while. But things like um, you know, like doubly linked lists and, and linked lists and things like that, which were pretty critical for uh, that you that that you used maybe a lot more in C plus plus and a lot less historically maybe in C sharp explicitly or in JavaScript. You know, there's there's aspects of Watchtower, for example, that are implement. Actually, I won't say aspects. There's almost the entire thing is a collections of uh, singly or doubly linked lists that uh, are traversed at certain times, and um, th that's like there's a reason that an array is not used, right? Um, 
Right. And uh, so this makes, turns out to make a difference. Um, So things like that, um, things about just garbage collection and, and, and memory pressure, which are things you would deal with in .NET if you were trying to write something that was very efficient, especially, for example, like, like if you were doing something um, like in the X, with XNA, for example, where you had this loop, uh, this game loop, and you had to be careful about garbage, uh, right? Because you don't want to stop the world GC to happen and Classic problem. Kill, your, kill your frame rate, right? So like that actually matters in something like Angular um, with Watchtower because um, of this digest. It needs to be super efficient. It needs to not generate garbage because if it does, then... You know, while the while the the desktop might handle that okay, your phone is going to stutter right in the middle of that animation, right when you're switching through pages because of the garbage just hit this. Um, you know, the GC pressure just went past the threshold. You know, because of the garbage generated from you know observation or whatever. So there's a lot of work like that happening, which has big effects on mobile and, and on performance in general. And it's stuff that your average JavaScript developer probably doesn't have to does doesn't need to think about. But in a, a core part of a library like this, it's like every little thing is very, very important. Yeah. Um, like that. The higher level the code is, it maybe it, it matters a little bit less, but something like that, it matters a lot and has a big impact on mobile. So mobile is a huge use case, huge story for 2.0. Rob, I know you can't say, but uh, when do you get the feeling about when Angular 2.0 is going to be available? As soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't say anything about that. We are, we are working uh, as fast as we can. Um, By the end of the year, though? I mean, you think? I don't know. I can't would, love, say I that? would love, love to have that, but I can't say anything yeah. about that. Um, you know, we, It'll probably happen in a couple of phases. The first thing that will happen is we'll say, Hey, we're not ready to release yet, but we've got enough done that you can build stuff with. Please go try it and send us feedback. So that'll be the first thing that's going to happen. And then we'll take that feedback and continue, you know, working through issues and performance tuning and right. yada, yada, yada. And then we'll come to that release. So it's not just going to be an all of a sudden, here it is, you know. Um, it's all being done in the open, of course, but there will be sort of a, a, a milestone where we'll say, okay, you know, it's not ready yet, but it's there's enough there that you can actually build something significant. Please, please try it out. Uh, so that'll be the next thing that happens, and we're trying to get there as fast as we can. Uh, but there's a lot of issues to navigate. I mean, I you know, we got to make a lot of decisions at the low level. Those effects are felt increasingly as you move up mm-hmm. higher and higher, right? Yep. Um, so things like templating, it's super critical that we get that right. And there's a lot of different stories there. I mean, we want, we've got web components on the horizon and none of the, you know, none of the MV star frameworks out there can handle web components right now hmm. because data binding works in all these libraries based on the knowledge of a fixed number of elements and events, right? So we know that if we want two-way data binding to happen with an input, we know how to do that because we know what input is. But what if it's like my custom control and they want two-way data binding to some property on that? Well, right. you can't you can't do that. So you have to have a way to teach the data binding framework about things like that. So because web components, one web components is like a collection of specs, and some of them are 
more mature than others. And so there's been a lot of prototyping around enabling, uh, like, for example, enabling this use case. So-and-so creates a web component outside of Angular entirely. They just create a web component straight against the web component specs element uh, or document.register element, right? And then they want to use it in an Angular app and they want to data bind its properties. So, um, like, that's a, that's an interesting challenge, right? Because this thing was, this is going to happen because once web components hit the browsers, it's going to be sort of like a jQuery revolution, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, jQuery was great because it abstracted the DOM, but the other big thing about jQuery was jQuery plugins, right? And it made programming JavaScript so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially between different kinds of devices. Yeah. That's the thing, right? You could have finally built something that worked on something other than your flipping browser. Yep. But there's, I don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands of these jQuery plugins. You know, if you, if you want, if you need a little date picker widget, you go grab a jQuery plugin for that. Right. Well, that's, that's kind of what Web Components is about. So once the browser has these core capabilities, people are going to start building these Web Components to do all sorts of things. And there's, there's, they're going to build them in all different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's not really, um, Nobody knows what the best practices are for web components yet, right? They're, 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 and people are going to do horrible things probably for a couple of years, and then it'll <laughs> settle down, and people will figure out, you know, how to build them, right? Right. But we can't wait for that to happen to have a framework that is capable of letting people use it because no one will adopt the framework. You know, it, as web components grow, people are going to want to build them. People will want to leverage them. You give your your uh, your search internet search to find calendar widget and it's this awesome web component and then you say well I can't use that with Angular 2.0 because it doesn't support web components you know that's a problem right people will abandon um, the framework because the widgets that they want to use don't work so so we're committed to you know supporting web components and so there's a question of okay how do we do that because in the Angular world we've got data binding we've got dependency injection we've got our templating engine. And none of those things are part of web components uh, specs or in any way. So we have to kind of imagine, you know, what it, what does it mean to uh, data, you know, how would data binding work against a web component that was not built with Angular in mind? Right. Um, and so there's a lot of things like that. What if somebody builds a web component with Angular and then wants to go use it in an Ember app mm. because it's a web, you know, they want to, you know, they want to build a web component, right? But they but they like some capabilities of Angular, so they want to build a, an Angularified web component that they want to put out there for somebody to use in a non-Angular app. Can we support that? Right. right. You can't own everything, right? You have to. Right. So have to... there's a lot of these challenges, um, a lot of question marks. You know, this is very sort of untrod territory here um, that we're working through. Um, Doing multiple prototypes, you know the, the specs are um, written by are imperfect. You know they're written by imperfect people working with an imperfect uh, browser ecosystem, and the specs are imperfect. And so you know there's there's things to work through there. Um, Rob, we could go on forever, but apparently we're way over time, so we're going to have to cut it there. But uh, all right. Well, it's going to be awesome. I'll just say that. I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) Don't hold back, dude. Tell us how you really feel. I just want you to go on and on. We should do a two-hour show on Angular, on what you're feeling, you know. But, uh, wow, can't wait. Rock on. It's a fun time right now. 
Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us, and please keep in touch as uh, as 2O progresses. We'll definitely do that. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 